So I want to give a special shout out to Lauren and Joshua today because they are in the service. Uh, so they may be living, leaving uh, during this time. Today is Youth Sunday at St. Paul, so it's always a highlight. Uh, and um, two of our youth who make it possible for those of you who watch live stream um, to watch live stream. And somebody told me uh, at some gathering we had, maybe it was last Sunday, that um, they responded positively to my threat <laughs> that if you're within 25 miles of this place and you're watching a live stream, you could be here. And we would appreciate it if you were. So um, if you would make sure that your cell phone is off, because if it rings during class, I'm going to call you up to take over. No, I won't do that. But anyway, try to do that. So it's our custom here to begin in silence. So if you would just, uh, if it's helpful for you to close your eyes, you can do that. Just do whatever you need to do to get in the room. Take a deep breath. So our goal is to be present and to be open and to be awake. And I was thinking um, that a mnemonic you can use to remember this Celtic prayer is um, head, eyes, ears, mouth, heart. And this, this meaning, you know what that means. So grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouth and in our speaking. Grace be in our heart and in our understanding. And grace be at our ends and in our departing. And for all of us. So my hope is that you find what you're looking for here and that you uh, leave more peaceful and joyful and happier than you did when you walked in here. So the values that we order, I remind you every week, are peace, honesty, and love, and freedom. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I want to announce <clears throat> that my friend, Robert Hilliger, is starting a tradition, and it's, he hopes to move this into the River Oaks Theater next time it happens, because um, someone he knows is buying the River Oaks Theater and is going to turn it into an art theater, going to preserve it as a theater. But Robert wants to start doing a thing that he's calling dinner in a movie. And so this Tuesday night, he's showing the movie in and of itself. And those of you who have not seen in and of itself, you can watch it on Hulu if you like. But it's going to be more fun, I think, if you, if you haven't seen this movie. I want to read you. Um, I, I tell you, I found out about it because we record um, Stephen Colbert and watch it the next night. And Stephen Colbert had the man who, Robert Del Gladio, who, and the filmmaker on his show, Stephen Colbert and his wife, Evie, saw the Broadway show that was produced almost 600 nights, one-man show that Robert uh, is in, and um, they thought it would deserve such a wider audience that they had a movie made out of it. This is what one uh, critic says about the film. It is a work of art that will hit you right in your soul, while at the same time challenging your brain like no other. I've seen it four times. I can't think of a movie that ever got in my head and heart like this one has. So if you've not seen it, you can see it in a group of people Tuesday night with dinner, and Robert says the food is good. It's a hike out to uh, the place, but there's a map available on the, the website if you want to go. Then after the film, Robert and I are going to discuss it. 
uh, and do some questions. So it ought to be a fun evening if you want to go. There are flyers in the back for this. That's this Tuesday night. And thank you, Wayne, for um, announcing about um, Susanna Heschel right around the corner. Then this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And in this room at 7.30 on Wednesday morning, there's an Ash Wednesday breakfast. Dr. Jim Bankston, I saw him outside, but he didn't come here. Maybe he's teaching another class. We'll be the speaker at that meeting. There will be imposition of the ashes in the sanctuary all throughout the day on Wednesday. There will be two services, one at noon, one at 7. It's a full day. It's a long day here on Ash Wednesday, so it's a good day, and I encourage you to avail, to avail yourself of it. And then one of the best-kept secrets in Houston is that on Thursdays during Lent at 12.15, there is a free concert in the sanctuary sponsored by the St. Paul's um, Chamber Music Society. And uh, this week, Baroque flutist David Ross is going to be performing with the Mercury Chamber Orchestra. And again, these are free. Just have to, to show up. And uh, the Thursday performances are, are really good. So I think that's everything. You okay? All right. I, I, I have uh, taken the title of this talk from a sign that I saw in a casino in Las Vegas. Now, I need to explain why, why I was in a casino in the first place. But um, as you probably have heard me say, this woman that I'm married to uh, has encouraged the, that we raft the Grand Canyon three times. We've rafted the entire length of the Grand Canyon three times. That's 250 miles of the biggest white water in America. And uh, the drop-off and pick-off place for the outfitters who take you is Las Vegas. So we got a, a hotel room in Las Vegas to store our, lug our things while we were on this 10-day rafting trip. And then when we came back, we stayed a couple of days and saw shows and that sort of thing. So that explained why I was in Vegas. And I saw this sign in uh, one of the lounges that said, you must be present to win. And, and uh, I think it was in Keno. I don't know anything about Keno, but there, is a, there are games out there where you've you got to be there to, to win, and I think this is one of them. And, and actually, this, uh, this could sum up most all wise and useful spiritual teaching. You have to be present. And um, so the last several teachings that I have offered in here have focused on this matter of awareness. Being willing to be aware, waking up, if you will, being present, is the first and essential step on the path to being fully human. And my hope is that for this time today, to lead us more deeply into this matter as we focus on what it means to be present to presence. And I'm using presence with a capital P rather than the word God or even my currently favorite word for sacred mystery, which is grace. And during this time today, I'm going to share with you two of my very favorite stories from the Hebrew tradition. Um, my goal and my thesis about them are simple, and I want to be above board about them. My goal is to have you leave here with your spiritually, religiously, politically, socially, and relational lives rearranged. So that love and honesty and freedom, those three values, are what matters most to us, and that we allow those values to be expressed through how we live. That's my goal. And my thesis, <clears throat> my thesis is that the more we give up believing in as a way of doing religion or spirituality and embrace living in instead of that, the better off we all will be. By the way, that's very consistent with the teachings of Jesus. 
he seemed both by his deeds and teachings to want most of all for people to share his experience of experiencing God. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, um, if, if that's possible. Because it was because of this experience of his and his belief that everything and everyone was connected, that he could say, as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. So with that as my introduction, I want to share the first story with you. It's a story about the prophet Elisha. Now, Elijah is one of the two Hebrew prophets that the followers of Jesus used to shape the Jesus story around. The other Hebrew prophet is Elisha. Um, Matthew also uses Moses a lot, but the, the early Christian community, being Jewish, really shaped the Jesus story after Elijah and Elisha. We can go into that later if that's helpful, but all the miracle stories, the miracle parables that the early community fashioned about Jesus are taken from Elisha and Elijah, all of them. Walking on water, raising the dead, all of that comes from those. Now, like many of the characters in the world religions, Elijah was a real person. Uh, he actually lived, and then, like a lot of other real people, he had these amazing stories told about him because they wanted to communicate his charisma and his power as, as a leader. So uh, this is also true for Elisha and for Moses and, of course, for, for Jesus. So Elijah, and this painting is a painting by Washington Austin, and if you search the Internet for famous paintings of, and then you put in a character's name, Elijah, Elisha, Job, whoever. You get these famous painting pictures. And the paintings and the sculptures and stained glass of Elijah are just, they abound out there. They are just, there's a multitude of these famous paintings. Um, he was born sometime around 900 BC. He is venerated by Jews by Muslims and by Christians. So the story I want to tell begins with his hanging out in the desert like you see here in this photograph. And he's waiting for either God to rescue him or for Ahab to kill him. Now you remember the piece of active imagination I shared with you last week about the cave? Caves are very important in spiritual work, in dreams, religious symbols, metaphors. So earlier, right before this time, an angel had come to Elijah and said, you should eat something. I mean, I just love this depiction of God as a Jewish mother. Eat already, you know, take some nourishment, get some rest, go over to that cave over there and take it easy. So this is what Elijah does. He eats something, and he goes. He has some water. He's provided for divinely. And he goes into the cave, and he waits. This is, all of this is metaphorical. All this is symbolic teaching, going into the cave, relying anyway. After a while in the cave, he hears this fierce, howling wind. But he doesn't respond to that because he knows that such loudness isn't God. And then there's an earthquake, but God isn't in the earthquake either. And after the earthquake, there is a fire, but God is not in the fire either. And then there is what the scripture calls a still, small voice. Eugene Peterson translates it, a gentle, quiet whisper. And when Elijah hears it, he wraps his face in a mantle. Uh, I mean, he wraps his face with his robe, and he goes out, and he stands at the entrance of the cave, and there God tells him what to do to save himself and his people, and that is precisely what Elijah does. And I won't go on with the rest of the story now. It's in 1 Kings. It's a great story. I mean, it's just 
got everything in it that you would want in a good action movie. It's one of the great stories in the Jewish tradition. I mean, this is, this is the guy who has given us so much imagery. The phrase, chariots of fire, that movie, that comes from the Elijah story because he's taken up into heaven at the end of his life in chariots of fire. And um, Elijah, he contributed to our hymns and everyone. So the lesson in this, and there are many, is that we have to give ourselves proper nourishment Instead of the junk food we usually feast on, you know, you know your habits, we have to withdraw and we have to discern what out of all the lies about us, around us, constitute the authentic word of the sacred to us. So we must learn to hear and in order to do that, we must learn to be present. Being present is so difficult for so many reasons and in so many ways that most people quickly bypass it. And in the process, they make religion into something you believe. Oh, if I believe this, then that's easy. Then I'm done. Or they succumb to the notion that self-worth is located in what you have. That's a religion of our culture. Or who you associate with, what your tribe is, what, what your label is, or what you have accomplished, what you have done. Now, as I've said for the last several sessions in here, being focused on some aspect of awareness, being and becoming aware, which is both a daily and a lifelong undertaking is the first step on the path to being and becoming human. Awareness also opens us up to wonder, to the world as it is. And last week, I said to know how, using various modalities, we, by the way we communicate with each other, just like now, are creating a social reality. We create reality by the way we communicate. These, this is kind of a summary of the last several sessions in here. Now, any one of those we could spend a lot of our time and attention on. But taken together, these are the tools. This constitutes the platform on which we begin to stand in order to be open to and available to sacred presence. It's the most precious thing that we can offer to each other, really to be present to each other. So I'm hoping that these teachings lead us away, lead you away from believing in things as the way to go, and rather um, living in, living in the sphere of the sacred. Now, as I said, we're next Sunday going to talk about God. And that's impossible to do, but we don't ever stop trying. There are some guidelines I can offer you about practice, which I intend to do in just a moment. But um, I just want to be clear that whatever we mean by the word God cannot be conveyed by words. And I think Jews and Muslims have a better grasp of this than Christians do. Certainly post-Protestant Christians uh, Jews refuse to say the word. Muslims have the honor that they give to the Quran and to the prophet. Um, and Christians are very casual about this. We, you know, we invoke God all the time about all, all sorts of things. So, One of the things that stirred up my curiosity about things psychological, though I certainly didn't have the vocabulary to describe this at the time, was that I was frightened of the dark as a child. And I knew that some of my peers didn't have the same anxiety. My brother, who was six years older than me, he's deceased now, uh, he gave me a hell of a time teasing me about being afraid of the dark unmercifully. And it would be decades before I could learn that the origin of my anxiety 
lay in the family system in which I was embedded, but I didn't see that for decades. By the way, I, I, can, I can remember with crystal clarity to this very second where I was, what kind of day it was, what the weather was like, when I was washed over with such a sense of profound gratitude for those days of terror. Because had it not been for them, I would not be where I was or am. And where I was and am is precisely where I want and need to be. But it took that to get here. Understand? At any rate, during those times when I was in agony as a child and frightened of the dark, it wasn't that I wanted somebody to turn in and come in and turn on the lights. That's not what I wanted. I wanted someone to come in and be with me. I wanted presence. So the French philosopher Pascal wrote, what at first you might think is silly or shallow, I know I did when I first read it. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. The more I thought about it, however, the truer this seems to me to be. If we need to learn to be present to ourselves in order to be present to another, and if being present to another is the most precious gift that we can give or receive, then we, aided by our culture, do a lot of things to put roadblocks in the way of that. Because so many people can't just sit and be. We have got to be doing something. The games come out on our devices. The TV comes on. Multitasking in one way or another is something most of us are proficient at doing. It is one, uh, one of life's spiritual ironies that in order to be present to ourselves, we need others to be present to us. And again, it's paradoxical. One of the first lines that I memorized when I was in clinical training was that in order to know yourself, you must be known by another. And in order to be known by another, you must know yourself. Being fully present is much harder than it seems. And it requires, at least as I see it right now, three things. And though we could use other words, I'm going to use these for convenience. The words of stillness, silence, and solitude. Now these may sound similar but they are not the same. They're quite different experiences. In order to, pre to be present, you have to be still, like the surface of a pool of calm water, clear water. You have to be still. However, most of us are so full of inner activity and distraction that we can't do stillness. The first complaint that I hear from people about having a spiritual practice is, I don't have time for that. I'm full of things that distract me, so I assume you are well, as well. I, I've got a long to-do list that I keep on my device of things to do. And, and um, they're the things I hope to get done today. I've already planned this afternoon out. know what I want to hope to do, you know, all that. So I'm there instead of here. And then there's all that stuff that's back there. Oh, God, I wish I hadn't done that or said that. I wrote a poem, turned backward, turned backward, oh time in thy flight, I thought of a comeback I needed last night. <laughs> and we may blame our lack of stillness on all this inner as well as external noise, but the fact is that we use the noise to avoid the realities of our inner world. This is the world that so many, that caused so many people to say, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. To which I remind you that Jesus' response to that is, I do know you and I love you. 
So what I'm trying to say is that all these things required to build a life of being present have both an inner and an outer dimension. Being alone is important for inner solitude, but just being alone won't create inner solitude. Meaning, uh, be, being alone and inner solitude means being at peace with being me. So if any of you have ever been to a silent retreat, or you create a period of silence in your own life, you will quickly learn that doesn't automatically create inner silence. The noise from the inner world can be deafening. So what's required for inner silence is being attentive to that noise and just observing it, not judging it, not trying to make it go away, but just noticing it. This is the development of the observing mind. So on a real simple level, I'll give you an example. Is Just notice yourself when you're in a conversation with somebody else. While they're speaking, you're crafting what you're going to say. That's what I mean about not being present. I'm thinking about what I need to say. This is the kind of stillness that Pascal is, is talking about. Now, <clears throat> there are barriers to these three things. And in Buddhism, the words to describe the barriers that keep us out of the areas of stillness and silence are what the Buddhists call cravings and aversions. Now, if anybody is interested, I'll just let you know, I can run a master class on cravings. Lately, my craving has been my obsession about, after we moved, I found all these instructional DVDs that I want to rip and put on my computer or iPad, but they're copy protected, so I can't do that. And I've been trying to figure out a way to get around that. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. I mean, if somebody got a solution, I'll be available over here after class. But I can get obsessed by that sort of thing. I'm sure you can get obsessed by stuff like that as well. Everybody does. And, and, and I will write in my journal, I will say to myself, I don't know why I'm wasting my life this way. I, and that's a trick I use. It might be helpful to you. Instead of wasting my time, I don't say that. I say wasting my life because time is my life. That seems to work sometimes. It doesn't work all the time. So we live in a culture that offers us training classes every day in craving. Why don't you buy this? What, we noticed the other night watching a television program, um, we've, we've gotten um, sort of addicted to watching lingo. Have you discovered that one on CBS, lingo? It's Wordle on TV, and it's much harder than Wordle on paper. And we noticed in the commercial, they're now advertising pharmaceuticals that don't tell you what they're for. <laughs> Just to try whatever it is, and then they give you all these side effects that assure you if you do try, do try it, you will likely die, but ask your doctor anyway. I did that one day. I asked my doctor for his home phone number so I could call him up when these commercials came on. He didn't like that idea. The teacher at the heart of our religion says, you can't serve two masters at once. And he put it starkly when he said that the major commandment of his religion was, you must love the Lord your God with everything that you have and everything that you are. By the way, I sometimes hear people say when I reference other religions, like Judaism, uh, Islam, uh, Buddhism, that, oh, well, all religions are the same. They're not. All religions are not the same. Religions are different. That's why they, they're different. One of the differences between Buddhism and Christianity, for example, is that in Buddhism, craving is the source of suffering. Jesus never taught that. What Jesus taught was it's how your cravings are ordered that's the cause of suffering. 
Get the difference? His, his thing was crave God first and then crave this other stuff. Make sure that's the priority. It's disordered craving. That's the problem in, in, Christian th in, in, in Jesus' thinking. So here's the line from Psalm 46 that I think it's helpful to revisit on a regular basis. Some uh, scholars think that this is written by Isaiah. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. So this stillness is letting go and being present to ourselves and to sacred mystery. And it's a state of simply being. It's not doing, it's not not doing, it's just being. Now, I want to assure you that whatever resistance that you have to having a daily spiritual practice, and each of you does. I know I joke about this a lot, but I know you resist it. Everybody does. That's normal. We resist these states. We resist stillness and silence and solitude. And, and, and there are probably as many reasons for resisting these things as there are people in the room. Some time ago, somebody said to me after class, you know, you're wasting your time trying to get me to have a daily spiritual practice because I don't believe in prayer. And I wanted to say, daily spiritual practice doesn't have anything to do with prayer. Nothing. It has to do with being still, silent, and quiet. Spiritual practice is about paying attention, being aware, and letting go. And all of these are the things that our culture trains us to be counterintuitive about. Now, I, I could devote a class to each one of these if it would be helpful. Now, you might ask, I hope, why is this so important? Well, I'll respond with a question. Why is organized Christianity in such a decline at the time? And... Somebody says, well, the far right is growing. No, the far right screams about Christian nationalism. Those are death rattles. Trust me. It's going. A kind of related question is, why in God's name have Protestant denominations across this country in the last few years gotten such into such a divisive frenzy about the issue of full inclusion? Why is that? And it's happening outside the church as well. About what you can read, what schools you can go to, what, you can, what kind of history you can read. Um, we, we now live within walking distance of the museum district. And the other day, I went down to the Museum of Natural Science, and I got introduced to a microbiologist. He was a lot bigger than I thought. I actually bought a device I intended to bring today and hold it to the mic that does a rim shot. I didn't bring it. That's not my note. Yesterday we walked to the Chinese Garden from where we live. And, um, huh? In Herman Park. Yeah, Japanese Garden. Uh huh. Have you been? Yeah. And saw the ducks? Saw your ducks? And walked all, all around and saw the people. It's just a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. Beautiful day out. And uh, walked all around all the paths and saw everything. It's a wonderful, wonderful space. And on the way out of Herman Park, and I had to go home and put this in my notes, we saw this sign. It's appealing to um, coming soon, this play space for Herman Park, and they want to get money for making impossible. Possible. And I want you to see the tagline on this sign. Championing diversity, inclusion, equity, and access. That ought to be written above the door of every church in this country. 
to be a church. And it isn't. Why? This matter of full inclusion has been raising its ugly head in the Methodist Church for a number of years. And a few years ago, um, based on a talk, that, actually a sermon that Jim Bankson gave about can I invite my friends, I mentioned something in, in here, this is years ago, about if Jesus were here, you know that rhetorical question, if Jesus were here, what would he say to us? You know, we'd love to do that sort of thing. And, of course, I didn't give anybody time to respond because I never do. But <laughs> immediately after class, some guy came up to me and he said, I know exactly what Jesus would say to us if he were here. And I said, really? And he said, sure. If Jesus were here today, he would look at us all and he would say, let's go get some text mix and bring your friends. That's brilliant. The Christian movement got amnesia about Jesus and his teachings when Constantine came on the scene and required Christians to come up with stuff to believe. That's when we started killing each other. And then those we considered infidels, because they didn't believe the right stuff, so the church has become not only religiously illiterate, but it has become mystically illiterate too. Now the reason this stuff is important is because the only way to save the earth is to recover a sense of the sacred, and this happens by recovering the sense of sacredness of the self, of my true self, of your true self, of his true self, of her true self. Without this, we're going to continue doing what we're doing, and we will continue getting what we're getting. Being present leads to being present to presence. That's why it's important. Last week, I uh, mentioned to you John Tanford's little book, The Kingdom Within, and, and I do that because we're heading into this territory um, someday. I want to read you a kind of extended piece from it. I noticed yesterday there's a coffee stain on that book cover. <laughs> Listen to this. This is from this book. It may, it's not contemporary language, but you can get it. Wittingly or unwittingly, in our pursuit of more power to the ego, in our attempt to dominate nature, and coerce it into serving the ego and its purposes, in our overvaluing of the intellect, in the dominance of the masculine and its values over the feminine and its values, the ego puts the sword to the soul. In our rationalism, in our insistence that all reality be material and apprehendable by the senses of the body, in our demand for logic, for words that make sense, and for precise definitions, the soul is being attacked. In our fear of our dreams, our repudiation of the mystical side of life, and our regulation of myths to the world of senseless fables, soul is being starved in our insistence that if only people possess material wealth, all would be well, soul's right to live is denied. In our striving upward into the world of space, while at the same time poisoning and denuding the earth, the natural province of the soul, we are poisoning the soul as well. In our refusal to carry nobly the share of suffering life allots us, and our efforts to escape it at all costs through drugs, through therapies that stress only the ego and its values, through a distortion of Christianity into a religion that teaches God as a deity only of ego-made happiness, not suffering, soul is denied the depth of experience that is her natural source of life. That's good stuff. So I hope these pastimes together are preparing your soul 
For when we step more directly into the teachings of Jesus, to see them as not things to believe, but things to allow to inhabit you. They have to do with the inner world. Now, the story of Elijah that we begin with today is an example of just exactly that. When that story was created, it was not created so people could say, wow, Elijah was a wonderful guy. That's not why they created that story. It was so that they could hear that story and learn some things that would provide them with enlightenment, guidance, and sustenance for their daily living. It wasn't about Elijah. It was about them. During the shutdown, some of you may or may not remember this, we, we did everything to keep things going and all that stuff. We had a speaker from outside, uh, John Tucker. You might remember John Tucker from Oregon. And he wrote a, John Tucker wrote a book called Zero Theology, going beyond escaping belief. And in that book, which is a very difficult to read book, by the way, I'll just, I'm not recommending a book, it's a hard book to read. Um, he has this wonderful metaphor about stained glass. And the metaphor is that when glass was first created, it was created as a decorative object, as something to look at, not something to look through, right? So stained glass windows, and this is a stained glass window of, jo of um, Jonah. It was um, created in 1110. It's old. It's in Osberg Cathedral. Beautiful, beautiful piece of stained glass. They were created long before clear glass windows. They were created as things to look at, not through. And the light that did come through them caused people to see themselves and other people differently. Like living inside a kaleidoscope. And when clear glass came, the process changed so that we quit looking at the window and we look through the window at things. And we became so skilled at objectifying. I'm not against clear glass, by the way. But these stories, like Elijah and the one I want to tell you in a minute, they're stained glass. And before we had stained glass, we had um, icons. And this is the icon that used to be at the head of every ordinary life class. This is the icon of the Pentecostal, which means the powerful or the authority. And this in Eastern Christianity you see all over uh, Turkey and Syria and places like that. It's the most common picture depicted. This, by the way, is the earliest painting that we have of uh, depiction of Jesus. Um, it is... Um, Somewhere, the scholars say, from the 5th century, some scholars say early. It's the earliest depiction we have of Jesus. I didn't say this is what Jesus looked like. This is the earliest depiction that we currently have. Maybe archaeologists will find something else. It's a wonderful depiction of non-duality because if you look closely at the face of the picture, the two sides of the face are different. One face is softer and more feminine than the other, kind of like Rembrandt's painting of the father's hands in the return of the prodigal which I'll reference also again next Sunday the feminine hand and the, the masculine hand so um, here's an icon that is probably the most famous icon in iconography um, it's certainly the most famous icon in orthodox Russian orth Russian Eastern Orthodox Christianity it was um, created by a guy named Andre Rublev in the 15th century. And uh, this is one of the four icons, big icons, that I have in my study. I have the Pentecostal icon, um, and um, I have the Vladimir, not Vladimir Putin, uh, the, <laughs> there's a Vladimir icon of the Holy Mary and Child that I have is a very famous uh, icon. And then an icon that I got on the pilgrimage when we went to Italy, an icon of St. Nicholas. So I see this icon every day, and it's um, incredible. This is a painting. For those of you who don't know your Bible, this is uh, Genesis 18. 
This is a story of um, the three visitors that came to visit Abraham. And you can read the whole story, which I hope you do, because I'm, I'm going to stop it before it gets into really the sexy, juicy part um, this afternoon. Uh, you could read it and see. And, and um, these three visitors come to Abraham, and they're referenced later as angels in the story because the way the Hebrew text translates this part of the Abraham story, it said, God appears to Abraham while he was at the Oaks of Mamre, sitting at the entrance of his tent. And the text goes on to say it was the hottest part of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing he ran from his tent to greet them and bowed before them. And as I said, this is the beginning of one of the greatest stories in the Hebrew Bible. So Abraham offers them hospitality. Now again, listen to the metaphors in the story. Abraham recognizes. He has to see. He's able to see three strangers he welcomes the strange into his life, offers them hospitality. This becomes the bedrock of uh, Jewish ethics, radical hospitality. And while they are there and Abraham is taking care of them, one of these angels says, we're going to come back here this time next year, and when we do, your wife is going to be pregnant. Now, Sarah and Abraham are old people, right? And Sarah is listening to this, and Sarah laughs. And she says, an old woman like me get pregnant with this old man of a husband? And this is when God says to Abraham, is anything too hard for God? That has become one of the most misused and abused lines in the Old Testament. Somebody has some crisis, and they say there's a way out of it. Nothing's too hard for God. And it just doesn't take crisis seriously. At any rate, these visitors lead, and they head for Sodom and Gomorrah that God is going to destroy because of their sinfulness, which is not about sexuality, by the way. And Abraham gets in an argument with God and changes God's mind about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, later on in this story, you might remember, and there are paintings of this also on the Internet, Lot's wife, Lot and his wife are told to flee Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're told when you flee, don't look back. But Lot's wife looked back, Remember? And she's turned into a pillar of salt. And I wonder what the biblical literalists do with this story. It's not one that comes up a lot when you talk about somebody that says, I take the Bible literally. Oh, really? You think? So Sarah does have a baby. And she names him Isaac, which means God lasts. Or laughter, depends. So later on, these three characters are uh, given a new definition, and they come as a stand-in for the Christian trinity. God in three persons, because that's the way the story begins. What you think about the trinity is irrelevant. That's just what, what happened to this icon. This icon is just crammed with symbols. Um, Richard Rohr says, and there's no way to prove this, Richard Orr says that at one time, here, this in this little square right here, there was a mirror. And uh, may, not, may not be true, but if that's true, what Rohr says is that when you look at the icon, you become the fourth part of the Trinity. You're in the story. Well, whether there's a mirror there or not, you're in the story. So Abraham welcomes... God into his life. Now, Abraham is not part of this story, but <clears throat> Abraham himself is a symbol of the very beginning of the journey into humanness because Abraham heard a call from God to get up and leave home and head out for a place that he didn't know where he was going. That's it in a nutshell. That's the call to each of us. 
And I think it is the hardest thing in spiritual work is to get up and leave home. You got a home you're tied to back there or a home you hope to get to out there. You can't be at home here. And that's the goal, to be present. So one of, <clears throat> one of the lessons of awareness that awareness wants to teach us is that if we fail to recognize the other in people, we have no chance of knowing the sacred. There is this story where, uh, another great story from the Hebrew tradition, where Isaac and Jacob are involved in a fight. And they meet after years of hostility. They've been going on back and forth. And Jacob grabs his brother by the hair of his chest and pulls him up and looks at him. And the Hebrew says, I see your face. And you look like God to me. Conversely, if we learn to show hospitality to the stranger and to the stranger that is part of every person we counter and to the stranger that is part of every one of us, then we are showing hospitality to the sacred there as well. So honoring otherness is an essential part of any spirituality, regardless of your religious persuasion. If you truly want to encounter what we mean by the word God, we've got to enter this silence and stillness. Offer hospitality to all, inner and outer. Now here's next Sunday's talk in a, in a, in a nutshell. That others are not like us is a threat. Right? That others are not like us is also curiosity. Don't you ever wonder, you see somebody on television or in the news or somebody you're talking to and you just want to say, how in God's name did you end up thinking that? And they did just the same way you ended up thinking what you think. Now, <clears throat> that's also true what I just said about God. Our, if I took a poll of every person in this room, I think that the majority of you would say, if you first ask your response, first response to the word God, it's going to be something negative. Fearful. <laughs> Ashamed. Whatever. So the same thing is true about God. And um, Rudolf Otto, in his book on God, described it as the, the mysterious tremendum, that fear of God, the fear of the, not fear as in being frightened of, but just awed, and the mysterious fascination. It's both. So I hope you come back to hear that. After all, you got to be present to win. <laughs> no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat> mm.